Lesson 38, um, the person of the Holy Spirit. You know, last semester we um, walked through a number of doctrines under the heading Christology, under just the study of Christ, and and in this semester we're going to walk through a number of doctrines that fit under uh, what we would call pneumatology, the study of the Holy Spirit. And so this week and next week, we're, we're going to hit more generally, just the person of the Holy Spirit today, and then next week, just in general, the work of the Holy Spirit, uh, both His general common work in all of creation, but then also His special work in redemption. And then in all the weeks after, we're going to just hit different aspects of the special work of the Holy Spirit. Um, and so these two weeks that we all have together are just to kind of lay uh, some groundwork in place. Turn, if you would, to John chapter 16. John chapter 16. You know, really, there's three chapters here, John 14, 15, and 16, that all in some way contain a statement from Jesus about the the promise and the coming of the Holy Spirit. But I'll read Genesis 1, 1 through 2. This is the very beginning of Scripture. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And so we see here in the, in the very beginning of the account of creation, the Spirit of God is hovering over the waters as if poised for action, sort of ready that now as God says, let there be, and there was... I think we're meant to sort of see, okay, God's going to decree, the Son is going to speak, and the Spirit is going to do. And it was, is going to be part of the work of the Spirit who's hovering over the waters in the very beginning. And as we read farther into the Bible, we realize that the Spirit is not some just mere aspect of God or this facet of God, but He's actually a person. He's fully God. He is distinct. He's united with the Father and the Son, and yet he's a person. So John 16, someone read verses 7 and 8 there for us. Yeah, so we see there, it's, it's to your advantage I go away, Jesus is going to say, so that I can send to you the Helper. So there's one phrase we'll look at, to the, the Spirit uh, that is referred to as the Spirit. Then you look after that, it said, I will send who to you? The next verse. But if I go, I will send, what's the word? Yeah. Him to you. And when He comes, He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. And so the Spirit is not some life force that's sort of pulsating through the universe or a cosmic wind or kind of the Star Wars, the the good side and the dark side, kind of the force that's just sort of out there. But Scripture always refers to the Spirit as He, not it, not thing, but as a person and talks about Him as a person. We see that he's someone that we can watch and worship. So in Mark thirteen eleven and in Revelation 2, the Spirit speaks. 
You know, the Spirit's going to speak to the churches. The Spirit's going to speak to people. The Spirit's going to hear and intercede in Romans 8, 26 and 27. The Spirit hears and then He intercedes for us. The Spirit has a mind, according to Romans 8, 27. The Spirit can be grieved, according to Isaiah 63, 10 and Ephesians 4, 30. He can be blasphemed, according to Mark 3, 22 through 27. Just that Jesus would say, okay, if you blaspheme the Son, that can be forgiven. But if you blaspheme against the Spirit... And so even there you see Jesus saying that the Spirit isn't just sort of this thing of God, this facet of Him, but a person that to reject the Spirit's testimony about the Son is actually different than rejecting the Son's testimony about the Son. And even the disciples' testimony. And so the Spirit is testifying to who Jesus is as a witness, as a person. And so to reject Him is to reject a person and to reject God. And Jesus is going to call that blasphemy. So our main point for today is that the Holy Spirit of God is a real and distinct person named throughout Scripture, fully God, and the one who formed and now fills the church of Jesus Christ. And so we're going to spend these weeks ahead just indulging this pleasure of coming to know the Spirit more fully and love the Spirit more fully and delight in the Spirit more fully. I don't think we ought to be intimidated by the, the many doctrines of the Holy Spirit. What are reasons that we get intimidated by these, the doctrines of the Holy Spirit? Hard and mysterious. In what way is it hard and mysterious? I think that's a big one. So we don't have this. There's something about, okay, Jesus coming as a man, being born somewhere, having earthly parents, having an earthly town, like interacting with other, you see, okay, confined to this time and space and to this body. Okay, we get that. But pneuma, you know, just wind, spirit, ruach, just wind, spirit, that these, those are words that really do denote you can't confine and incarnate the Spirit of God, and so you just you don't see Him as concretely in the Bible, even though His works are incredibly concrete and incredibly clear, and the things that the Scripture says about Him are as well. What are other reasons we get intimidated? Yeah. In that vein, I think that things we can't see are some of the things that scare us as well, you know, some of the things that we've been taught that are evil, or when you see a scary movie, sometimes it's an evil spirit or something, so there's a connotation and, a, and an opening to be afraid of something that we cannot see. Yeah, I mean, if you, if you walk into the room and you hear a voice say, I'm here, and nobody's there, <laughs> yeah. there's something about the idea of the presence of a person that you cannot see, the presence of a person that is mighty and powerful and works around us. But, I mean, if, if somebody, if a friend of ours had the, the power of invisibility, it would, we would, it would freak us out, you know? <laughs> because what would you think every moment of every day? Are they here? You know, is it present? Is it? And so there is something about the invisibility of the spirit. I think. What are other things? Yeah, Peter. The abuses of the church. How they identify the Holy Spirit. Yeah. So I think just the abuses of the church over the years, false teaching about the spirit, um, the spirit being sort of used as a reason for all kinds of behavior that's not just unusual in the sense of supernatural unusual, but bizarre. 
and chaotic and out of control. And, and so there's something about the abuses sometimes of the doctrine of the Holy Spirit that tempts you to just not, to just want to ignore it, to want to avoid it. Because it's like as soon as we start teaching on him, well, then all kinds of chaos or something is going to break out. And so some of what we'll talk about is that we, we really want to enjoy, avoid two pitfalls. One is, yes, to, to believe falsely about the Spirit, to make assumptions or to think things that the Scripture doesn't really teach. But then the other extreme, to avoid Him. And I think those two feed together. And I think when we sort of hear things that to us sound crazy about the Spirit, we'll, we're less likely to really want to dig in. And then the less we really dig into the Scripture to learn about the Spirit, the more susceptible we are to believing things that aren't true or not believing things that are true. Um, so one tends to feed the other. So we're going to start with his names, because I think that's a great way to get to know a person, right? Is to get to know how does he identify himself? How is he named in the Word of God? Turn, if you would, to Matthew 3. Matthew 3. So, you know, this is... John the Baptist speaking in verse 11, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, he's referring to Jesus, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. I think those are meant to sort of be together a little bit. He will baptize you with the person of the Holy Spirit. He says in fire, and what, what often does fire picture in the scripture? Especially if, it, yeah, purification in the life of a believer, there's something, there's a, a sanctifying, purifying, purging away of dross and sin, I think, in that image that he's trying to sort of capture. He keeps going in verse 13, then Jesus came to Galilee, to the Jordan, to John, to be baptized by him. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. Behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove. And coming to rest on him. Verse 17, and behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. And so he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove. So another name for the spirit of God is the spirit of God. And descending like a dove, which is a picture of what? What, what often does a dove picture and symbolize in scripture? Peace. Peace. What else? Purity. So remember Noah, when, when the floods, the waters are going to recede, he's going to send out a dove. And the dove comes back to him. Why? No place to land. But a raven didn't have a problem finding a place to land. Why did a raven find a place to land? What probably is there floating on the water everywhere? Yeah, just death and carcasses. And so a, a raven, this picture of this unclean sort of bird, doesn't have a problem landing on that which is unclean. But here a dove is going to come back to Noah until it can find a place to rest its foot, but a place that is clean. And so I think some of the picture we have here is not just the peace of God sort of descending and resting on him, but in a way I think the spirit sort of imaged as a dove to show this is a clean, holy, righteous person, a statement sort of to the world of God's peace upon Christ, but also just the purity and righteousness of Christ. But we see there these, these words for the Holy Spirit, beginning with, number one, the Holy Spirit. They're in Matthew 3.11. Numatai Hagio, which is translated Holy Spirit. So Numa 
the Greek word pneuma throughout the New Testament is going to refer to sort of wind, spirit. But anytime the hagio, the holy, is accompanied to it, it's always a reference to the Holy Spirit, to, to the person of the Holy Spirit who is God. In the, in the Hebrew, ruach is kind of, it kind of plays the same role, that it's wind or spirit. Or, and so, but then when you see hagio, you know, holy around it, you know, okay, this is refers to God, or theos, it's going to refer to God. And so Holy Spirit is one way that he's referred to. We see in that passage the Spirit of God there in Matthew 3.16, also Genesis 1.2. You have a number of references there in your notes that the Spirit of God, or similar, the Spirit of the Lord, Judges 3.10 and Isaiah 11.2, the Spirit of the Lord God, Isaiah 61.1. The Spirit of the Living God, 2 Corinthians 3.3. So all these are ways of saying the Spirit of God, the Spirit of the Lord God, showing His special union with the Father and with the Son. What those words don't mean is this, this part of God, this aspect of God, this feature of God, but rather this person who is the person of God, yet united to the Father in a very intimate way, united to the Son in an intimate way. Yeah, point C there, the Spirit of Christ in Romans 8, 9, and in Philippians 1, 19, that He's called the Spirit of Christ, or the Spirit of Jesus Christ in Philippians 1, 19. I know that through your prayers, Paul said, and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. So through your prayers, God's going to hear and send the Spirit of Jesus Christ. And I love the connection to this will turn out to, for my deliverance. Because what's going to have to happen for Paul to be delivered from prison? For him, for him to get out of prison, what's going to have to happen? Like what? Like what pieces have to move around the table? Like what people? The guards, the king, Caesar. I mean, think about all these elements that are involved in Paul being in prison. And he's saying, through your prayers and the spirit of Jesus Christ, this will work out for my deliverance, for me to get out. And so, in other words, it's the spirit of Christ that he believes is going to move all these pieces. That God will decree and the spirit will make that happen. Also, point D, the spirit of holiness, Romans 1.4. The spirit of life, Romans 8.2. The spirit of truth, John 14.17 and 16.13. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and might, Isaiah 11.2. The spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, Isaiah 11.2. The spirit of adoption, in Romans 8.15. The spirit of glory, in 1 Peter 4.14. So just in his names, isn't it incredible how much is told to us and spoken about the Holy Spirit? Just in how he's named throughout Scripture, the spirit of wisdom and understanding. You know, the spirit of counsel and might. The spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. You know, we'll look at it a little later. This is why just prayer ought to be just the impulse of the Christian. How often do we need knowledge? You know, how often do we need, yeah, wisdom and understanding? And as we'll see also, this isn't detached from the Word of God. But what it means is as we come to the Word of God, we pray, Spirit, please give. 
wisdom and understanding. Spirit, please give knowledge. Yeah, this is also in Isaiah 11. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, speaking of Christ, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. It's all in Isaiah 11 too, that this day is coming where this person will come and upon him will rest the Spirit of God. And so he is a person. He is someone who rested upon Jesus Christ. According to Peter in Acts 10, that God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. Just the idea that even Jesus is able to accomplish what he accomplished, even in Jesus' own mind, because of the Holy Spirit. That he was able to be crucified and the strength to fulfill that and to be raised because of the Holy Spirit. But then also a big and broad term is there point E, the helper or comforter. Turn to, to John 14, if you would. It kind of started in John 16, but... And someone read uh, 15 through 26 for us. It's a good chunk. So real quickly, that's important, right? That you know him. That's what he's saying. You, you have intimate understanding of this person if he dwells in you. And you read the account of Scripture, and, you, and there's things you can begin to understand and explain that happens in your heart and in your life and around you because you know this person. So that's why, as I said earlier, we don't need to be afraid of the doctrines of the Holy Spirit. I mean, they should, they should delight us. As, as we can know these truths, we can know him. Keep going, verse 18. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him. Why do you think it's important that it said they're not Iscariot? Because yeah, I think both what he's asking and what Jesus is about to say next doesn't apply to Judas Iscariot. And I think John's careful to point that out. That there's actually, these are those to whom the Spirit is promised. These things are going to be true. Keep going. Yeah, this is why it's important that we not think that, man, if only Jesus walked among us still, then I could believe things. Uh, you know, if only Jesus was right here in front of me doing that, then I could. Because what is Jesus saying in this passage? It's to your advantage that I go away. Why? 
He will come and this will be better. It will be better for you that the Spirit come. Why? Why is it going to be better? He's in us. There's one. What else? Yeah, there's something about sort of the just internal evidence and testimony in addition to what's being said that helps. Yeah. You think, and he's, one of the things he's going to say is, and he will teach you all things. In other words, you know, Jesus is having to teach his disciples, but yet all along these years that they're with him, he teaches stuff, and then what, do they understand it? It's just right over their head. And then it's after he's raised. And after the Spirit comes, they're like, oh, that's what he meant. And so in a way, if it's just Jesus walking with them, like day after day after day, it's to constantly teach them, constantly teach them. They don't get it. They don't get it. But the Spirit comes who can actually give a new heart and understanding of what's been spoken. And you can actually comprehend. That's why he's the Spirit of wisdom and understanding what Jesus has been teaching all along. So some of why just Jesus ascending to send a Spirit was to their advantage and to our advantage. Yeah, so if you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper. There's another thing to point out, it's just he's a gift. There's a gift of God, the Holy Spirit. To be with you, how long? Verse 16? Forever. So it won't even be that on the day of our death, and we're raised, and we're there in heaven, that we're not spirit-filled anymore. Because we're just sort of physically in the presence of God. But rather, no, that'll be forever. We'll be filled with the Spirit. Even the Spirit of truth. Another one of His names. Whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees Him nor knows Him. And again, just the way the Scripture often uses that language of seeing Him is a reference to faith. Mm -hmm. Seeing Him by faith. Believing that He is. For He dwells with you and will be in you. So yeah, just to see His names, and to understand His names, and to know His names, is a lot of how we come to know the person of the Holy Spirit. But then also we see His deity throughout the Scripture. We've already said in His names, we see the relationship between the Spirit and the Father. The relationship between the Spirit and the Son is one that, that only God can have. And that, that speaking of them as one, as together from the beginning. Yeah, just that Matthew twenty eight nineteen, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and what? And of the Holy Spirit. Just that he would be listed there in that kind of relationship uh, with the Father and the Son is a testimony to his deity. That's why Paul, you know, to the Corinthians who were so concerned about who baptized them. Was it Paul? Was it Apollos? Was it who? Who got baptized by the greater guy? So that we can, I can kind of have that as leverage over others. And Paul's like, were you baptized into my name? <laughs> I mean, and, and that was why that was so abhorrent to Paul, the thought. No, you were baptized into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Into his name. Who cares who did it? That's why he even said, I'm so thankful I didn't baptize most of you people. So that you couldn't use my name that way. Um, but I think I, and I love it, he can't even remember. He's like, I baptized so-and-so and so-and-so, and I, I can't remember who else I baptized. And so it just kind of shows how unimportant, you know, that part is compared to into whose name you're baptized and how the Spirit's name is put right there with the Father and with the Son. 
but also we see it in his attributes. Hebrews 9.14, he's called the eternal spirit. So just the idea that the spirit has no beginning and no end. He's the eternal spirit. I mean, that is a statement of godness about him. 1 John 5.6, he is the truth. You know, this is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. So here he's not just called the Spirit of truth, but the Spirit is the truth. And so that's something that's, that's only attributed to God and said to God in Scripture, that he is the truth. Number three, he is holy by nature. Matthew twelve thirty one and 32, that certainly his name says enough. I mean, he is the Holy Spirit. Yet we can even say more that in Romans 1, 4, he's called the Spirit of Holiness. Just to have that name, the Spirit. Why do you think he's called the Spirit of Holiness? Not just the Holy Spirit. Why do you think he's called the Spirit of Holiness? He There's the big one. He sanctifies. He makes holy. I mean, just that idea of someone who can make unholy things holy, one who can, that's astounding. Because all of us can make holy things unholy, right? We see that everywhere in the scripture, that direction of us taking holy things and making it unholy. But the other direction is a whole nother feat to actually take unholy things and make them holy, to set them apart in a way for God, that God can actually dwell with them forever and his majesty and holiness not be offended. I mean, that's incredible. I think it's part of why it says that when Jesus comes, he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. He will baptize you in the Holy Spirit, and that will have a purging, purifying, making holy effect on those that he baptizes. Yeah, first, someone would get 1 Corinthians 2, 9 through 11. Then someone else could get Psalm 139.7. Someone else could get Luke 24.29. And so we're going to see also that the Holy Spirit is portrayed in Scripture as omniscient and omnipresent and even omnipotent. Let's go ahead and read 1 Corinthians 2, 9 through 11. Yeah, the idea that the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. Yes. And so I think he means everything, everything. That's what the Spirit searches and knows and understands. So it's just he's omniscient. Mm-hmm. Psalm 139.7. Someone read that. Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? So you see where those are, those are put there together. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from what? Your presence presence. Can't get away from your spirit, therefore I can't get away from your presence. And so he, he's everywhere, and he's everywhere because of the spirit. But also he's omnipotent. Someone even read Luke twenty four twenty nine.
2449, yeah, I'm sorry. I'm like, wait a minute, what? That is so yeah, 49. <laughs> yeah, the... Um. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father yeah, upon it. you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Yes, yeah, so this idea of clothed with power from on high. And what's, who's he referring to? The Spirit. Yeah, then in Acts 1, 8, it's going to talk about the, the, the power of God that's going to come to the disciples. You're going to be clothed with power from on high. And so the idea that it's the Spirit who both possess and is, is going to bring the power that is from on high. God's very power. It's going to be theirs. It's also going to be that same power we're going to see, according to Ephesians 1, that Jesus is raised from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit. We also see in his work, point C, the deity of the Spirit through his work, both in creation. You know, Psalm 104 says, uh, 27 through 30, these all look to you to give them their food in due season. And when you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are filled with good things. When you hide your face, they are dismayed. When you take away their breath, and how does God take away breath from things? By whose action? I think that's the spirit. By the spirit, the pneuma is taken away. They die and return to the dust. And when you send forth your spirit... They are created, and you renew the face of the ground. So you withhold your spirit, death. You give your spirit, creation. And so you see this again. This is, this is how we put together this doctrine of the Trinity, that there's God the Father that decrees, and God the Son that speaks and provides the materials. And then you have God the Spirit who actually builds and constructs and creates, that they're all working together here in creation, uh, but also even in death. But also we see there, I think, from that same passage, the idea of sustaining creation. That all things are upheld by the word of Christ's power, but then how does that work? I think we turn to passages like this, where the Spirit goes forth and gives life and holds it together. The Spirit is drawn and it dies. And so one of the ways that Christ upholds all things by the word of his power is through the Spirit fulfilling the word as he goes out. Yeah, thirdly, in common mercies toward all people, Matthew 5, 44 and 45, and Acts 14, 15 through 17, where the Spirit is connected to just the giving of life and of food and of rain and of just common mercies of God. Just even the work of conviction. And I don't mean the conviction that saves people, but the conviction that just convicts people. Where Jesus said, I'm going to send the Spirit, and He's going to be a Spirit that brings conviction and judgment. I think he means that the Spirit's going to testify uh, to all people everywhere, to the existence of God, the power of God, and to all those who hear the gospel, to, to who Jesus is. And there's going to be just a very natural conviction there. That's why when the church shows up in a place and just exists as the church, what does the surrounding world begin to feel and begin to think? Yeah, there's a conviction that's there just by existing, yes. just by being there. There's some testimony that, okay, the works of the world are evil just by the presence of light. And so the Spirit is a big part of that presence. 
According to Romans 8.11, in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, see if the Spirit of Him, Romans 8.11, who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, who raised Christ Jesus from the dead, He will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. So that's where we see the, 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 the instrument of resurrection. The agent of resurrection is the Holy Spirit. That's who's actually going to give life to our dead carcasses when that, and, and raise us as he did the Son. Yeah, in adoption and regeneration, Romans 8, 14 through 17, Titus 3, 5 and 6, we see the Spirit connected to our adoption and our regeneration. So again, those are the things in those kinds of works that only God can do. In interceding for the saints before the Father, this is interesting. That's, this is one of the reason that John Calvin was, was probably one of the, you know, before, I think when, when you get to John Calvin, nobody had written more about the Holy Spirit than John Calvin. John Owen's going to surpass him by about 28 million words. But, it, but John Calvin wrote a lot on the Spirit because it, he felt that was the one doctrine that many, the Catholic Church had abused more than anything. That the Catholic Church had replaced the Spirit with saints, and replaced the Spirit with Mary, and replaced the Spirit with the Pope, and replaced the work of the Spirit with the sacraments. And so he saw actually so much of what the Catholic Church was doing as, as abusing and taking the work of the Spirit and claiming it for their own, or the saints and those things. And so he wrote a lot on the Spirit, and one of them was this idea of interceding for the saints before the Father. Is why you don't pray to saints, because they can't intercede for you before the Father. They can't hear you in heaven. And they don't have the kind of audience before God to actually move God the Father to decree things and to do things and to hear prayer and to answer the way the Spirit can intercede. And so it's one of the great comforts we have in prayer is, okay, that, that the Spirit actually intercedes for us in prayer. Yeah, in making things new and holy, Titus 3, 1 through 7, where we see just the, the, the part of us being made holy is the work of the Spirit making us holy. And then eighthly, just in the inspiration of Scripture, that according to 2 Timothy 3, that all Scripture is what? God breathed. And so it's a, it's a clear statement about the Spirit inspiring. According to Peter, that men wrote Scripture because they were carried along by the Spirit of God to write what they wrote. It's why no portion of Scripture is up for our own interpretation, because God wrote it and meant something by what He said. So you see, just all those eight, we could probably come up with others, are just works of the Spirit that are so clearly God's works, that so clearly show that He is both a person and fully God. We're not going to go into detail with all those because, um, because we're going to hit them so much in the weeks ahead, just the specific work of the Spirit. But then finally, His worship under that section. That the Holy Spirit can be blasphemed. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Matthew twelve thirty one. What Jesus means there is the Spirit is the one who testifies that Jesus is the Christ that came and died for sin in the place of sinners and was raised for our salvation and our justification. 
And the Spirit testifies that this is who it is. He is the Son of God, the Christ. And so to reject the testimony of the Spirit, of who Jesus is and what he did, what is left that we can be forgiven? I mean, the, very, the only means of forgiveness is being rejected. Yes. The only means of forgiveness is being uh, denied and cast out. That's why he says it can't be forgiven. You know, you, it can't be forgiven someone who denies the testimony of the Spirit about Jesus. Yes. So that's, that's why the Spirit, as God, can be blasphemed. In verse 32 of Matthew 12, And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. Whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. So that's a serious statement, just that this is someone who can be worshipped and someone who can be blasphemed. This can be someone who can be treated as God and his word is God's word, or he can be rejected as God and that the consequences fit. So before we get into just kind of the main portion this morning of just his coming into the world and the implications, any, any questions, any comments, any thoughts? Yeah, John. When we were talking about number three, that the common mercies and the Holy Spirit's conviction after Christ ascended, yep. what about before that? Because, I mean, you think of Romans 2, uh, when it talks about um, you know, the Gentiles who don't have the law by nature um, do what the law requires. There are a lot of themselves, even though they do not have the law, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness to them. So, yeah, I think to say that that's a statement about how God works in the world generally, both testifying to the consciences of people and bearing, some kind of bearing of witness. Even when we say, okay, the heavens declare the glory of God, there's sort of enough there. That's what, and so I think that's in part the work of the Spirit to bring that kind of sort of conviction. It's not a conviction that is a saving conviction, but it's that conviction that, that when everybody gets to heaven and says, well, well, I didn't know. Nobody told me. <laughs> I think it could be arguing. No, the, the Spirit told you. Like the Spirit was testifying to, to these things. And so, yeah, I think that's another great passage that just gets to the general work of the Spirit in testifying. Yeah. Yeah. There's another question. Yeah, Casey. Yep. That's a great question. That's yeah. That's some of what we're going to get at in Acts two, but but yes, there is a difference. And so, in one way, you see language in under the new covenant of how the script, or how the spirit is working. There's language like indwelling, uh-huh. and sealing, uh-huh. and guaranteeing, and okay, that language that is not used in in the Old Testament, even when. Jeremiah 31 is going to say, okay, I will write my law upon their hearts. I will give them a new heart. I will take out this heart, give them this heart. Well, those are things that, yeah, clearly Jeremiah is saying there's going to be a new day that's going to come where God's going to do something in a way that he hasn't quite done like that before. And so certainly at Pentecost, we're going to see that. And then just the way the epistles are going to explain what the Spirit is doing yeah, is, is unique. So I think indwelling is a big part giving a new heart in that way. I think there is continuity. Like, I think the Spirit is always the one who brings faith. You know, and so the Old Testament saints are saved by faith. Well, where did they get that faith? I think the Spirit 
It's going to be one that's going to give them faith. You're going to see the Spirit come upon people in the Old Testament, but then you're going to see the Spirit depart. Um, you're going to see Him anoint in ways um, to do things, and then, then He's going to leave. And so I think there is going to be a difference under Old Covenant, New Covenant, to how the Spirit is... Because again, you're going to get the church under the New Covenant that is never... The Old Testament saints, even the community of Old Testament saints, is never referred to as the church until you get to the New Covenant. And now all those Old Testament saints are part of the church. But there's a time where, okay, the church is born uh, when the Holy Spirit descends. And so, yeah, I I think it's right to see... Okay, what is the language that's different in the two testaments to how the Spirit is referred? Just the fact that Jesus would say, I'm going to go away and send someone to you as the helper. That, that we'll look at a passage here in a little bit um, in John 7 where Jesus is clearly setting a mark down. That something's about to happen that's never happened before and is going to set everything on a distinct trajectory. And that God's people are going to know God and experience the Spirit in a way that hasn't been before. So great, great question. Yeah, just uh, go ahead, Johnny. Were you going to say yeah, something I, to that? I was going to just add to that. Maybe a, a helpful, just key verse for what you're explaining is John fourteen seventeen. So Jesus talks about He who is with you, talking to His disciples, will be in you. Um, so it seems that there was, there is a distinction in that new covenant. It seems that the, the Spirit was present corporately with God's people, yep. and he worked on the people, uh, worked on God's people, and would would still work regeneration, but that filling and dwelling isn't, and isn't until the new covenant benefits. Yeah. That's good. So John 14, 17. That's good. <coughs> would you add anything? Or? Okay, unhelpful <laughs> snide remarks. So any helpful not snide remarks? Somebody else had a question, I think. Yeah, Paul's going to say to the Corinthians, you know, I planted, Apollos watered, but it's God who causes the growth. And so I think in one way, that's, yeah, it's the work of the Spirit in doing that. This Second Timothy, even chapter 2, on those very lines, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness, that God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. That God might grant repentance. And it says, leading to a knowledge of the truth. And who is it, according to what we've looked at so far, is the one who leads to a knowledge of the truth? It's the work of the Spirit. The Spirit of knowledge and of understanding and of truth. And so, yeah, just even there, it's like, okay, so correct with gentleness. But knowing that God's going to be the one who has to grant repentance and the Spirit lead them to a knowledge of the truth so that they can escape the snare of the devil 
So it's like God, you know, Father, Son, Spirit, Devil, other person, us. You know, it's like that's the order we see. And so that's why he's saying don't fight and quarrel. And you say it and pray. Don't just say it louder if it doesn't work. Don't say it more vehemently and more cruelly if it doesn't work. Because you're realizing you're planting the seed. Others may water. But then the Spirit has to come and lead people to a knowledge of the truth. And it's, it's true for all of us, right? We all have testimonies of all sorts and kinds and things that God used to bring us to, you know, and how many of us now in our testimony say, you know what? Yeah, I just studied and studied and studied and figured it out. And, and just <laughs> when I really put it all together and thought hard enough about it, um, then I realized Jesus really is the Christ in this. Or is it clear as we look back that the Spirit was working and the Word was working? All these things were working in lots of ways. And then a day came where just blinders came off. Like a veil was lifted. And you're like, oh, and you believe. And so you've probably heard it said before, we come to faith in Christ and then spend the rest of our life understanding how it happened. Um, and learning and realizing, oh, that's why the longer we walk with the Lord, the more humble we should become. Because the more clearly we see just how gracious God was in bringing us to salvation. And just how both Father, Son, and Spirit were so intimately involved in that whole process. And then we're sort of the product. Even that Jesus would say, okay, Father, you give me those you give me, and I don't lose them. And Jesus is going to baptize them in the Spirit so that the Spirit can unite them to Jesus, so that Jesus can bring us to the Father. Like, we're just totally caught in the middle of this Father, Son, Holy Spirit plan where the Father decides and gives to the Son, the Son takes and baptizes into the Spirit, and the Spirit then unites to Christ through that baptism, and then Christ brings us to the Father. And then at what point do we get to go, man, look how much of the lifting I did. Um, just look how, and where does Jesus say, and then the Father will do this, I'll do this, Spirit will do this, and you'll do this, and then, but make sure you do, and then once you do that, then the Spirit will do this, and then you do this, and I'll do this. You, you, don't, you just don't see the four of us involved in much of that process, as much as, no, we, we get the benefits of what they're doing. Well, let's get to Acts, um, Acts 2 here. If everybody wants to turn there, important time in the history of the world and the church. In John 7, Jesus is going to say, And on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, so he's going to interpret what he means by thirst and come to me, believes in me, as the Spirit has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So Casey, that's to some of your question. Because as of yet, the Spirit hadn't been given. In whatever way Jesus is talking about, he's going to be given. And we're going to see that happen in Acts chapter 2, where Jesus is going to tell the disciples after he's raised to go to Jerusalem, as we read in Luke 24, until you're clothed with power from on high. And then here we're going to see that happen. Somebody read Acts 2, 1 through 4. When the day of the Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. 
And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Yeah, so a moment and something we, we've not quite seen before. There's a moment where Saul is among the prophets in the Old Testament, and other times where the Spirit comes upon them and they start prophesying. And so you kind of see these sort of moments, even in the Old Testament, where the Spirit's going to descend and do something and testify. Yet this, I mean, to come down with fire as John the Baptist promised that Jesus would do, and the Spirit descending and speaking these tongues and languages, there's nothing quite like it that's ever happened or since has ever happened quite like it. So much that many in Jerusalem gather around. Like this is a scene. This is something that had not been seen or anticipated before. Of course, they're going to think that they're all drunk, meaning the onlookers are going to think, well, they're just drunk, and Peter's going to stand up. Of course, it's always a good time to preach. If you're doing works in the, in the Lord and people think you're drunk, that'd be a, that's your cue. You need to share the gospel <laughs> at that point. You need to explain what's going on. So he's going to stand up and say, um, no, nope, they're not drunk, but rather God is fulfilling what he said and what he uttered through the prophet Joel. Somebody read that verses 17 and 18. Yeah, so kind of circle in the last days, circle in the last verse, in those days, and then put those arrows and put arrows to pour out my spirit on all flesh. I will pour out my spirit. Just again to Casey's question that we see that, okay, Joel was looking forward in the spirit to a day that is called the last days, meaning the the days of the church from Christ and his coming and ascension the church being born to, to his second advent. So between those two comings of Christ, we're going to have the last days. He's saying something's going to happen in those last days. And namely that I'm going to pour out my spirit upon my people in a way. And it'll be the rest of the epistles in the New Testament that helps us understand some of what that means. And that's what we'll get to in future weeks is things like sealing and guaranteeing, filling and indwelling, baptizing and, and these works of the spirit that are actually permanent. That's why it says, I'm going to give the Spirit, and He's going to be with you forever. Um, so we're in the last days, uh, the church age, the time between the advents of Jesus Christ, the time when the Spirit of God fills the people of God and unites them to Jesus Christ and brings about the purposes of God on earth. And even the rest of the book of Acts really is the, the book of the Acts of the Holy Spirit through the Apostles. And so we're just going to see the Holy Spirit's going to come, and the whole book of Acts is about the Holy Spirit planting and building the church. Um, that's why sometimes I get a little uncomfortable um, with any of us sort of taking on the term, I'm a church planter. You know, there's just sort of some, I know what it means. I just think it's worth thinking carefully about, is that the right word? Um, you know, Paul you know, saw himself as, as sort of an apostle, a minister of the gospel, an ambassador. Uh, because, you know, who really plants churches? Who, who conceives and forms and grows churches? I really think is a work of the Spirit. Now, I don't think we're, when we say I'm a church planter, I think we just mean I'm going somewhere to declare and proclaim the gospel, praying that God would 
build his church there and bring about a church. But even then, we just see here that it's the spirit in the book of Acts that's going to just grab Philip and send him over here uh, and to save this Ethiopian. And grab Philip and send him back over here. And he's going to take Paul, send him here. Paul's going to try to go there, and the spirit's not going to allow him. And instead, the spirit's going to send him here. Spirit's going to give him a vision. He's going to go to Macedonia. He's just going to go out somewhere, preach. The spirit of God's going to open up Lydia's heart, and there's going to be a church in Philippi. And so what you see is the Spirit all through moving the apostles and the disciples and and opening hearts to believe and planting churches where the Spirit wants churches and then growing those. This is Acts 10 where Peter was preaching in the house of Cornelius, even if you want to flip over there to Acts Acts chapter 10. Someone read 44 through 45 for us. So Peter's there preaching to Cornelius, to all these Gentiles. And here's what happened in verse 44 and 45. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the I actually love that passage because Peter's in the middle of a sermon and the Spirit just kind of interrupts. So the Spirit descends, and then those who are there that are already believers begin to see them and the evidence of them speaking in tongues. I think that, again, is another unique moment where he's showing, okay, that the gospel you received, the Spirit you received in Acts 2, is the same Spirit they're now receiving here. It's, and so they're seeing the evidence of it. So Peter's just sort of preaching, and then the Spirit just descends and starts converting people. And then those who came from Jerusalem are amazed that, oh my goodness, that God has given this gift of the Spirit. And that helps us interpret uh, Joel when it says, I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. That he doesn't mean on every single human being in the world. But he means of every tribe and tongue. He means that of, of all the Gentile nations, all the islands will have hope in this one. And so we're seeing that evidenced here. That was, again, shocking to these Jewish disciples from Jerusalem. And they were amazed that this gift of the Spirit was also given to Gentiles. So that even when Peter goes back to Jerusalem, they're going to get a meeting together, and they're going to be pretty mad at Peter because he went in and had fellowship with these Gentiles. But then Peter tells this story, and everybody has to shut up and go, well, then who are we to doubt that God has clearly poured out his Spirit on the Gentiles as well? So we'll see this pattern repeated throughout the book of Acts and the New Testament epistles explaining the role of the Spirit in the life of God's people. This is Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. Just this idea that in Christ we heard the word of truth, the gospel of our salvation, believed in him, and that we were sealed with the Holy Spirit in the way that the apostles were sealed with the Holy Spirit, in the way that Cornelius and those that were there were sealed with the Holy Spirit, in the way that we see every believer throughout the rest of Scripture sealed with the Spirit, we got that gift, and it seals us. Because we're also going to see there, hinted at, there's also another age that's coming. We have an inheritance that we haven't acquired yet. And it's the Spirit that is the down payment for it. 
It's the Spirit that is the one that, okay, we have the Spirit in us that we now know the thing that God has promised in this inheritance is going to come. We're going to get it. Implications. We have one minute for implications. You know, we already looked at John 16, uh, 7 and 8, where where the Spirit is referred to as the Helper or the Comforter. So to me, one implication of that is receive the comfort of the Holy Spirit. And I say that as as sort of uh, an imperative from Scripture because we can spend our lives seeking comfort everywhere and not feel comforted by God if we don't trust in and believe and receive the comfort of the Holy Spirit. I mean, how many of us in affliction really sit still long enough and dive into His Word long enough and crowd in prayer long enough for the comforter to comfort? Or do we give him about 9 to 10 seconds, and then I'm going to the refrigerator? You know, 9 to 10 seconds, and then I'm turning on the TV. 9 to 10 seconds, and I'm going to run to whatever I'm going to run to. And so, just this is one of those doctrines that has to make us slow down and go, okay, do I, do I receive the comforts of the comforter? Um, receive his conviction, 16.8, of just, yeah, even the conviction over sin and repentance, it's a gift. I mean, how many of us at times feel the pang? And then do we sit and receive it? Does it lead us to repentance? Or do we sort of numb it and avoid it and ignore it? I mean, how often does the Spirit sort of testify in our own hearts to, to something that we need to repent from or turn from or feel more weighty? And it's just so tempting to, to brush it aside. Yeah, know the truth. Point C, I mean, just the Scripture is breathed by the Spirit of God. We can trust it. Read the Scripture as the very Word of God and know it because it is the truth and it's the Spirit of truth that helps us comprehend it. Yeah, worship. You know, the Spirit inhabits the world to exalt Jesus Christ. He inhabits our hearts to exalt Jesus Christ. And so to respond to the Spirit with with worship. Yeah, pray. If there's anything we can take from even this lesson, it's to pray more. The, The Spirit hears. The Spirit intercedes. The Spirit takes our prayers before the Father. And intercedes for us. Yeah, be assured of the security of your salvation. Just that we're sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. And it's done. As we already talked about, it's the Father giving to the Son, the Son giving to the Spirit, the Spirit giving back to the Son, so the Son can take us to the Father. And as Jesus said, nobody gets out of my hand. And it's interesting that he would say that, and those that the Father gives me, I don't lose any. But where is Jesus right now? He's at the right hand of the Father. So how is he not going to lose us? Because of the Spirit. It's through the Spirit that the Son doesn't lose us. Um, and so just to see how you know, the, the persons of the Godhead work together. Live by his power. Certainly that's what Paul in Ephesians 1 is going to pray, that we would know his power. That we would walk in the power of the Spirit. And finally, we'll talk about this more in future weeks, just preserve unity. You know, Ephesians 4, 1 through 3, where Paul says to be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So in the church, we don't create unity, but we do preserve it. We don't forge unity. I mean, the Spirit does that. He unifies us to Christ and to one another, but we do protect it. We do our part by the Spirit to guard the unity 
that the Spirit's created. That's some of what we're meant to see in the book of Acts. It's just the unity of the church. How the Spirit makes them one in Christ. I know that was fast through the implications, but you can read some of those passages. And I mean, if you want a fun little exercise this week, just write out other implications. Just meditate on implications of the truth of the Spirit of God. Johnny, will you pray for us? We can... also intercedes on our behalf. And we pray, Lord, that we would just stand amazed at your work of salvation for your people, that your spirit would be uh, active in this church, that uh, he indeed would form uh, a unity that uh, could not be broken, and that we would be a people who are eager to maintain that unity. Lord, we pray that you would just give us hearts and minds to understand by your spirit as we seek to um, grow in our learning of the way that you've saved us. Lord, how can we gain from this reward? We can't give an answer. But we, uh, we thank you. We thank you for the salvation you've placed upon your people's heads. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.